As it happens, there's a surprising tradition of composers exploring the law in opera. Puccini, Bellini, and Verdi are just some examples. This is an aria from the contemporary opera Scalia, Ginsburg, by composer Derek Wong, and the character Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is disheartened by the seeming unwillingness of Justice Antonin Scalia to listen. The composer explains in notes for the album, Notorious RBG, Scalia is a one-act comic opera about the power of friendship in a divided world. The plot, in brief, when U.S. Supreme Court justices Ginsburg and Scalia are visited by a higher power, they must defend their differing opinions and unexpected friendship to win their freedom. Fittingly, in this virtuosic aria, you are searching in vain for a bright-line solution. The character of Justice Ginsburg expresses her judicial perspective in a manner ranging from 19th-century opera to 20th-century jazz and beyond, an evolving style to match her view of an evolving constitution. It is my hope, says Wong, that Scalia Ginsburg inspires listeners to follow the justice's example and find common ground with those with whom they disagree. For in the words of the opera's central duet, we are different, we are one. We suspect Terry Gross would laugh at this musical pastiche but she'd also no doubt take seriously the differing views of the U.S. Constitution considered by the characters. She might also find amusing the idea that everything we've just heard will turn up one way or another in the conversation we are about to share. NPR's award-winning host and co-executive producer of Fresh Air, Terry Gross, will deliver the Wilkes University Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities virtually this Sunday, April 25th in the afternoon. Fresh Air with Terry Gross has received many awards, including the Gracie Award by the America Women in Radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Edward R. Murrow Award, in 2010, she became the fourth recipient of the Modern Language Association's Phyllis Franklin Award for Public Advocacy of the Humanities. In 2011, she received the Authors Guild Award for Distinguished Service to the Literary Community. In 2015, Terry Gross was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and received the 2015 National Humanities Medal from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Terry Gross is the author of All I Did Was Ask, Conversations with Writers, Actors, Musicians, and Artists, published by Hyperion in 2004. Now, it is clear that an opera like Scalia Ginsburg brings together the law and humanities. We draw attention to the connection deliberately. We're about to learn how important experiencing opera is to Terry Gross, a medium that helps us, she says, 
learn something about who we are as humans. This happens to be a comic opera. Terry will also talk about comedy. We've heard Justice Ginsburg singing in frustration about Justice Scalia's inability to listen to her. Terry will weigh in on the nature of listening in our society. She'll even have a few things to say about the humanities as a discipline. The Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities was established at Wilkes University in 1980 in recognition of Judge Rosen's exceptional contributions to public service and will be presented virtually as an interview-style discussion again this Sunday afternoon, and the public is invited to attend free of charge. We had a chance to speak with Terry Gross in advance about fresh air and the pandemic, music, and more. Technically, I have this like little unit the size of a handbag that connects me in ways that I don't comprehend uh, to the control room, and I have a microphone attached to that. So uh, I connect to the control room. The guest connects to the control room from their home through a phone app, and then the engineer mixes both ends together. So that's the technical end. It's been interesting to work at home because in some ways I've always kind of felt that there's this difference between my professional life and my personal life, you know, and that, you know, my professional self doesn't happen at home. (laughs) And suddenly here I am at home talking to, you know, all these, you know, famous and not so famous people. And so those two parts of my life have come together in a a kind of interesting way that's been a... um, It's been a good thing, I think, in that respect. It's been an interesting thing to have that unifying experience. (laughs) But I'd welcome working back here at the studio again, where I happen to be today, with all of my colleagues who um, I, I just, I love our team, and I miss them a lot, even though we see each other on Zoom all the time. Just what do you observe, perhaps, about the ways in which the national conversation or conversations have changed in the course of the year? Have they changed? And and what do you see? What's been different in terms of the conversation with a capital C? Well, I mean, certainly on our show, um, we've been doing a lot more about racial justice issues, systemic inequality, um, pandemic-related issues, um, loneliness, (laughs) disconnection, um, while also just trying to keep a sense of, you know, beauty in our lives, it, like pop culture, movies, books. So we, we've just been trying to keep a, a balance in the conversation. Oh, and then there was just a lot of Trump, 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 Trump. Um, because when Trump was in office, there just seemed to be, you know, a, a, a calamity every day caused by the White House. <laughs> so it, it it's been... The focus of our conversations have been really different in the past year. You just made a a little bit of a wonderful laugh, and our listeners remark on that. They like your laugh, and they like the fact that you are able to have perspective with humor, not only talking to people who are funny, interviewing people who are funny, but also there's been the conversation of how people can be funny or do stand-up during the pandemic. What have you heard from people about that and the perspective that humor gives and and your own sense of bringing that to the program? Well, I I feel like comedy has has helped save my life in the past year. You know, listening to um, like late night comedy shows like Stephen Colbert, 
um, you know, it just it to be able to laugh the things that are really terrifying you is is I think a really healthy thing. And also there there's always a level of absurdity lurking beneath just about everything. And comics are really good at finding what that absurdity is and being able to like forefront it and make us laugh in the face of you know tragedy or crisis or despair. And I really appreciate that very much. I need that in my life. And you're always someone who seems to take such delight in bringing us music and musicians. And that must have been a similar kind of consoling or comforting aspect of the past year in terms of what you've been able to do? Oh, sure. I mean, music music is always uh, uh, partly salvation. <laughs> That's part of the reason why it's a part of so many, you know, religions. Um, but, um, yeah, one of the things I, you know, I listen to a lot of old music, like jazz from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I like opera a lot, which is often centuries old. And I find a kind of comfort in knowing that things that we might think as uh, unnecessary in the moment, like how can you listen to music when there's a crisis? But then you think about this music has survived world wars. Um, it's survived and it, you know, it survived all kinds of wars. Um, if you go back to like 18th century or 19th century operas and you think about how many wars in Europe and the rest of the world those those operas have survived it's remarkable and it makes you think not only is music beautiful it's enduring it's something that we that survives all of us it survives the wars it survives our lives and that durability really says something i think about its importance in human history and in our lives so I don't allow myself to think like, oh, it's really superficial and distracting to be listening to music. When I want to hear music, I'll listen. Is there an opera or are there operas or are there jazz players you particularly gravitated to this past year? You don't have to have a favorite, but is there something you found yourself saying, oh, yeah, yeah, something like that? Well, I, I, I'm taking this week off because um, uh, I like to take off a, a, a week I like to take off a couple of weeks in the winter, and this winter it ended up being spring <laughs> by the time I was able to do the second week. Um, and there's an opera. I just have to – give me a second. I just have to think of the name. It's a Palenque opera about nuns. Dialogues um, of the Carmelites? Yeah, Dialogues of the Carmelites. Thank you. How did you do that? Um, so there's an opera I saw – like one of the things I've really, really missed – during the pandemic is being able to go to the Metropolitan Opera simulcasts and movie theaters because it's, it's called the Met Live in HD and they, they simulcast to movie theaters. So like you're in a movie with a big screen and great sound and you're watching a live opera. And one of the operas that I saw not too long ago was Dialogue of the Carmelites, which is an opera by Planck about nuns who were and I'm forgetting which war this is. Is it the French Revolution? Uh, they had to decide whether to renounce their faith and save their lives or to keep their faith and know that they will be, I think, guillotined. Um, and it's the, the music is beautiful. And it's one of those operas where, like, the story is great, too. Because a lot of operas, they're basically like soap operas 
with great music. But this this is a it's a very spiritually oriented story, and um, so I, I on my to do list for this vacation is watching that again uh, because I know it will make me feel really good to see it again. And it is about people who have a conviction and a belief. Yes, so well put. And so that's what people have had to be thinking about all this year, about what do I believe and what am I willing to do in the face of challenges to that. Yes, and what sacrifices will I be forced to make or am I willing to make? You're so right about that, about it being about conviction. Now that we're talking about opera, I'm sure that you have interacted and, and, and probably saw the opera that was written about Scalia and Ginsburg and all of those things. And that brings the law together with opera, and that brings us together with the law and humanities event that you are going to be part of at Wilkes. We know that the humanities is a term that is so often considered academic, but you have been so acknowledged for your work in advancing the humanities, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Humanities Medal, and the advocacy on behalf of the humanities. Very, very important, and yet it seems to be that that term is saved for for academia. But what you do in your work is the humanities. I mean, I don't think of the umbrella word for it all the time, but sure, I mean, to me, the humanities is reflecting on you know, human history and what it means to be human with a kind of historical perspective. So it's history, it's the history of art, um, it's, you know, it's literature, but not current literature so much as like the history of literature and music. Um, and, you know, it's about what makes us human, what gives us shared experience. And in that sense, sure, our show is so much about that. And why it's so important and what you have done in the sense of the listening that you do and the modeling you do about listening. And speaking of literature past, Shakespeare calls it really a disorder. It's one of the Henrys. And he writes, it is the disease of not listening, the malady of not marking that I am troubled withal. And that's not hyperbole. That's a real problem in a society when there is the disease of not listening. What is lost when we lose the ability as a society to listen? Because it seems everybody's talking now with all our devices. Um, what do we lose? Uh, everything. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, if you're not listening to the person, if you're not listening to an individual, if you're not listening to you know, the culture, then you're, I don't know, you're, you're not connecting. It's a loss for you. But it's also, there's going to be more and more divisiveness, unless we listen. But the, the thing is, listening isn't enough. Like, you can listen all you want to, to lies. And we've had a lot of lies and falsehoods that we've faced in American culture and politics in the past few years. So you can listen to that all you want to. It's not going to help you get to truth. So um, in that sense, I don't think we should deceive ourselves about the power of listening. And if we just listen to each other, we'll understand. Uh, it's not enough. If you're listening to people who are lying to you, who are deceiving you, then that's not going to help you reach either understanding or truth. 
And we depend on language, and language can, as you've just told us, it can be a bunch of lies, or it could be sincere from the heart exchanges through language. You have always made a commitment to the language itself. You had Jeffrey Nunberg there to help us celebrate words and understand more about what they say about us, what words say about us, but also the harm they can do. And that is a commitment you've made over the years that is part of that answer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, with with Jeff, what we wanted to do, which I think we succeeded in doing because he was so great, is finding somebody who was a language expert who wasn't going to be picky about correcting our grammar, but would rather tell us how the words that we use reflect our changing values uh, and our changing politics and economy. So he would... He had a real knack for finding how words were entering our shared vocabulary and what that said about our lives. Did I read that disinformation was his last word of the year? I think that's right. Yeah. In the course of the time you'll have speaking in the Wilkes program in a conversational format, you'll not only be addressing the community at large because we're invited to join in the virtual session, but you will be talking to the students who have had a very rough year of it. When it's a formal setting like this, what are some of the things that they'll hear? Uh, I don't know. That's hard for me to answer. But, um, you know, when I do a Q&A with students, what I try to do is just answer their questions to the best of my ability. Um, so because uh, I'm not thinking of any, when, when I'm being interviewed, like this interview, for instance, I'm not thinking about like who's listening and how do I gear it toward them because I don't really know who's listening. Um, and all kinds of different people are listening, so I just say what I think and not try to gear it toward any group. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. If, that- if I know I'm just speaking to students, then I'll, I'll, I'll gear it to them. But usually if I'm just speaking to students, unless it's like a graduation speech, um, what I try to do is just answer their questions. You spoke so compellingly, I think, about the opera. And Opera Philadelphia, for example, has been doing some remarkably innovative things during the pandemic online and so forth. And it got me to thinking about the fact that you are in Philadelphia, even though you reach around the world. Is there something that, a je ne sais quoi, about the fact that you are in Philadelphia and the show has grown up in Philadelphia? Is there something intangible about fresh air that is Philadelphia-like? Well, really, the the reason why the show is in Philly is that, you know, I came to Philly in 1975 to host Fresh Air, which was already a pre-existing show, though it was very different back then. And it was three hours a day, five days a week. And slowly, you know, a couple of years later, uh, Danny Miller, who's now our executive producer, uh, started on Fresh Air as an intern. And we just really got along together. Doing the show with Danny was just like so many thousand times better than just doing it by myself. And so we just started working together and uh, we were able to kind of, you know, get a salary for him and everything. And so slowly, uh, uh, the two of us built the show into first a weekly national show and then a daily national show. And so the show grew here in Philly. And um, that's one of the reasons why I just stayed here, because the show was here. Um, and then my husband, his mother lived here. 
And um, that was another reason to stay for family reasons. My family was never in Philly. Um, and now, you know, it's where we live. It's our home. My husband grew up in Philly. I'm not asking for a specific time, but is there conversation at WHYY about when things might ease up in terms of COVID? I haven't heard anything yet. And I know one of the things on my mind is uh, now that more people are getting vaccinated and and I have both of my shots, um, how well is the vaccine holding up against the new variants? I think it maybe is too soon to know um, because, you know, there's the variants are still pretty new. More and more people are getting vaccinated. The vaccines weren't initially tested against the variants because they didn't exist yet. The variants didn't exist yet. So um, I think we need to know a little bit more about that, in my opinion, before deciding how soon to reopen everything again. Um, So I, I don't know. I really don't know. When you listen and the the voice is so important to you, and I think about how you pay attention to the person who is your guest, you make yourself vulnerable because you're open to whatever it is they're saying, and then you are taking it in and having to respond, even after all these years, in terms of energy. Is it both giving you a sense of energy and a charge because you've talked with somebody who's so compelling, but is it also, at the end of the day, is it draining? Is it both? Oh, absolutely. Um, I always think of the show as the thing that burns me out and the thing that revives me when I'm burned out (laughs) because it's so exhausting to do it. And at the same time, when things go well, it's so exhilarating to do it. But there's days when things don't go well. And, you, you know, I just feel like, wow, I'm exhausted. And this interview didn't go well. And, you know, we're not going to feel great about it. And those are the days where I just feel uh, just kind of depressed, you know, (laughs) just kind of blue. Um, But that usually doesn't last long because the next day is another show and maybe that person will be great and often they are and that kind of boosts me right up again. And I think one of the most wonderful things for us as listeners perhaps, and, and I'm sure it's exciting for you, when you speak with somebody we may not know, I mean, it's exciting when you do the high-profile folks, of course, but someone who has some remarkable story to tell, and you, you, and I think people just sort of stop in their tracks because it's somebody whom you're interested in and you're introducing us to. And that must be one of the ultimate pleasures, too, of what you do. Oh, it is, because, um, you know, like sometimes the most famous people who are the marquee names, they're really tired of being interviewed. And they're doing it because they have to, but, you know, they've been interviewed so many times. Whereas when you're finding people who haven't been interviewed a lot, but they really have a lot to say of value, and that value might be that they're very funny, that value might be that they have incredible insights into what happens after you leave prison. You know, it it could be any number of things, but, uh, yeah, that's that's... That brings a real sense of fulfillment because I think we all on the show feel like we're, we're connecting somebody of real you know, value to people who haven't heard about them yet. NPR's award-winning host and co-executive producer of Fresh Air, Terry Gross, 
speaking with us in advance of delivering the Wilkes University Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities virtually this Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. The interview-style discussion is titled All I Did Was Ask, An Afternoon with Terry Gross, and it will be moderated by Mark Stein, Wilkes University Professor of Communication Studies, with questions from Wilkes President Greg Kant. The public is invited and the lecture is free. And if you'd like more information, on the web, wilkes.edu slash Rosen, R-O-S-E-N-N, wilkes.edu slash Rosen. It is the award-winning host and co-executive producer of Fresh Air, Terry Gross, and she spoke with us in advance of delivering the Wilkes University Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities. The Max Rosen Lecture was established at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre in 1980 in recognition of Judge Max Rosen's exceptional contributions to public service. And it was set up by his former law clerks, his law firm, Rosen Jenkins and Greenwald family and friends. Past speakers include Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Anna Devere Smith, Anthony Lewis, Cory Booker, and Bob Woodward. And we can hazard a guess that Terry Gross has interviewed each one of those previous speakers. And we want to remind you that it is this Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. It was rescheduled. It was postponed due to the pandemic. So it will take place this year online. And it's this Sunday, April 25th at 3 o'clock. And for more information on the web, wilkes.edu slash Rosen. And that's where you can actually find the event. 3 o'clock is the start time, and it is free and open to the public. 